Hi folks, hope you're all doing really well. James here. Just a couple of announcements before we begin this episode. First off, this is the edited version of my interview with Johnny Zajamek. We focus here on his experience of 9-11 and how it brought him to Gaelic football. Also, I'd just like to thank everyone so much who has rated, reviewed, subscribed and followed the podcast. We really appreciate this. If you haven't done so, we would so much appreciate if you could do that for us. It would help us grow and it just would mean so much to us. Enjoy the episode. Bye. Welcome to the Hut Near the Bog, the podcast where a life and business coach and a philosopher discuss various aspects of human existence by drawing on the wisdom of Ireland as well as their own expertise and life experiences. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Johnny Zayamek is an American who boasts a strong Irish heritage with roots on both sides of his family. His great uncle was John Barry Curtin, a senator who in 1913 proposed and got a bill passed in the Californian Senate that recognised Ireland as a free state. Zayamek himself is a fascinating character, from working as a child actor between the ages of 5 and 14 to travelling and living all over the world. He's truly lived a full life. With all of that, there is one thing in particular which Johnny prizes above all the rest, Gaelic football. So Johnny, how did you come to play Gaelic football? So I was very familiar with the sport growing up in New York. My little brother actually played when we were kids, but I never did. I I was a three-sport athlete growing up. So I never really had time to take on a fourth at that time. When I moved over to Korea, there was a, I played in a a soccer league, a Sunday league, and all the teams would basically, you know, you'd go out on the lash after the matches and it was a whole lot of fun. Right. But I was palling around with two of the other clubs, which were, uh, were both Irish teams, the St. Patrick's and uh, Celtic were the two of the names. I was playing on a British team at the time. And these guys were like, hey, we're heading down to Thailand to, to play in the Asian Gaelic games for Gaelic football. I said, Gaelic football, like Irish football? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're heading down. I was like, you guys play that here? They're like, yeah, we just started a club. I was like, well, I want to play. They're like, well, we're, we're heading to the Asians now. You know, we're leaving next week, but uh, why don't you come train with us when we, we start up again in January? I was like, absolutely, I'm in. And just 
from there, I mean, I took to it like a duck to water. I just, it kind of was the the perfect match for all the the things that I bring, just with the toughness and the, the physicality and the, the ability to run and catch and and uh, and kick. It was all these things that I actually was really good at. Uh, but when you're looking at American football, which is you're kind of in a silo, you know, you're, you're very good at this or you're very good at that. Right. Or baseball, you, you that hand-eye coordination and, and, and such or wrestling just is a really physical sport and, and, and such. And I actually played lacrosse pretty extensively at a, a decent level when I got older, but again, it's, it's very different, right. But you kind of put it all into one and there's Gaelic football. So I trained like a lunatic, I lost uh, 40 pounds or about uh, what's it about? 20 or 15, 18 kilos. So yeah, trained our butts off in the, in, if you don't know if you've ever been to Korea, but it's, it, it's a, a Spartan existence when it comes to training for a sport like this, you, you, you don't train on grass, you train on these like hard sandy pitches. And so if you go down, like you're losing skin, you know, every time. So I've trained like lunatics and I made the senior panel and we went down to Hong Kong and kicked the living crap out of everyone. And we won the, the Derek Brady Cup for the, the senior championship for the Asian Gaelic Games. So that was my introduction to Gaelic football. We played in the final. It was the coolest thing. We get, we get let out by this Piper Brigade and we're meeting the, the Irish ambassador to China and the Irish special consulate to Hong Kong and all these, all these dignitaries, you know. And then we went and played this team from Tokyo and beat them 4-11 to 3-1. And it was just amazing. And uh, from there on out, I was, I was hooked. moved to Los Angeles shortly after that, after two and a half years in, in Korea. And there was a club there called the, uh, the Wild Geese. Yeah, started playing with them and became the chairman of that club after, after a few years. And, and it, was, it was a wonderful experience. So when I moved to Houston, when we decided to move to Houston back in 2009 during the financial crisis, the, there was no club. So I just set it as a goal. Like, all right, I'm going to build a club. I'm going to, I'm going to get this going. I know it can, I know it's possible. I know I can do this. And I set about, and it took me over two years to, to get it going. And the only responses I was getting, I had things up on, uh, I think the website was called irishabroad.com. So I had the, I had things up on this site and a few other sites. And this is very at the early stages of Facebook. So you really weren't using Facebook for, for too many things at that point. And, the only responses I was getting at that point were like Nigerian people going, hey, hey, send me money for, you know, my uncle Olafemi, all this nonsense scamming, you know. And, you know, and then but then in a one week time, one week span, I had two responses that looked legit. One was uh, a guy named Mike Murphy from Mayo and another guy was uh, Philly Larkin from your dear old Tipperary from Money Gall. So. We all got together and there were a few other guys who joined us and 
I had the experience running a club out in California and, and uh, Philly had started a club over in uh, the Middle East and it also folded a club in the Middle East, but had a pretty good understanding of the financial side of, of the clubs and how they worked. And Mike had actually run a, a soccer club here in Houston. He had been here for a while and he had a lot of the contacts with pubs and, and, and different people who, who could kind of help us to get it going. And from there, we just, we ran with it and we got it going and uh, we played our first matches. We founded the club in late 11 and played our first matches in uh, early 2012. And from there, as they say, it's history. This is our ninth year. Proud to be playing my part, if you will. As Johnny has told us, he first played Gaelic football while in South Korea. But Johnny had never planned to go to South Korea. It would be a twist of fate linked to one of the most tragic events in modern history, which would bring him there and subsequently to Gaelic football. 19 years ago, I was working as a photographer and, and building my own business. I was I had kind of done the uh, burn the boats method. I, I completely stopped teaching. I, I was purely going hell bent on, on making it as a photographer. And ironically, today's date, September the 7th, I was at this, uh, I was at the MTV Music Awards that were held on September the 6th into the 7th, right? And it was my big break, so to speak. I, uh, I had uh, snuck into the MTV Music Awards and got all these photos and just kind of kicked some serious butt. One thing led to another, got invited to some private party, and it was like Jennifer Lopez's private party. And so on that night, I just kicked some serious ass. I mean, I, I, I really had it big. The following morning, I was at People Magazine, and uh, a, an old teammate of mine, a guy named Franny Fitzgerald, was an editor at the magazine, and they took over 50 of my photos, meaning I was going to make a massive payday because these were mostly exclusive photos, and the exclusivity is what drives the price. So this was the break, right? This is what I had put it all on the line for. This is what I had maxed out every credit card for, and, and, and this is what I, I needed to continue, if you will. So I was at a shoot on the night of September the 10th, and... It was pissing rain and it just wasn't, it wasn't a good night. But I, uh, I, I go back to Jersey and my, my friend wakes me up. He woke me up and he's like, hey, something happened. And we we're sitting there and we're, we're watching as the second plane hit. It does not appear that there's any kind of a, an effort up there yet. Now remember, oh my God. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. Has just I did not see a plane go in. That. That just exploded. We I, just saw another plane coming saw, in from the side. You did. I did that was out of absolute Yes, and that's you. the second explosion. You could see the plane come in just from the right-hand side of the screen. And I was like, holy shit, you know. So got up to my, uh, I got to my car, and my car had been parked on the side of the street for, for a month because I had, had a blown water pump. So I literally had like three-gallon I couldn't drive the car. Like it was going to seize the engine. But I said, screw it. Let me seize the engine if that means I can get to where I could because you couldn't get into the city. I threw my bike in the trunk of the car and I uh, had like three gallons of water and, and I would drive for like five minutes, pull over, pour the water in the radiator. Finally got to a point where you couldn't get anywhere closer. So I just parked the car on the side of the road and rode my bike uh, to the George Washington Bridge. I grew up like 10 minutes from the bridge. 
and what do you call it? They had a, a they had built a barricade, and I took my bike and I threw it over the barricade and I climbed it over and I rode across the bridge and took these photos from the bridge and you could see the smoke and it, it was just insanity, right? So I got into the city and long story short, rolled all the way down and both the towers, the first two towers had collapsed at that point and I had my camera, I was shooting film and got down to pretty close to ground zero and I was about maybe three blocks away or five blocks away, I should say, from, uh, from Tower 7 and Tower 7 collapsed. It was so close, I could see the, see the fire on the lower levels and you, you could smell it, you could smell the burning. It was just insanity, right? And people covered in dust. And it was, it was honestly like, I mean, it was the early, you know, mid-September, but it was like it was snowing. There was so much powder, like the pulverized cement, concrete, whatever, and drywall and, and what have you. So it was literally like it was snowing in the city. And then the ground started shaking and there's firemen running and cops and everybody's running. And I just stood there taking photos and I got covered up in all the yuck and uh, Tower 7 collapsed and I just I got enveloped in all the smoke and, and everything it was pretty crazy uh, so continued to photograph all that night I mean I was just covered in yuck right just filthy and just shot 13 rolls of film between the 11th and then the, the 12th At, on the 12th I went down bright and early actually on the night of the 11th I, I stayed at the Chelsea Hotel which any any rock music fans would recognize the Chelsea Hotel. Bob Dylan lived there. A lot of other uh, big-time musicians lived there. But my agent actually was living there, and I stayed with her that night. And then in the morning, I was at Ground Zero, and I caught probably the best photo that I've ever taken in my life. There was a nun, a Catholic nun, who was at Ground Zero, and I was at Ground Zero. I touched the touch towers one and two. I'm right there. And people would ask, like, what are you doing here? I was like, well, I'm a photographer. Who, who let you down here? The Red Cross guys. Okay, you're with the Red Cross? They let me down here. You know, so I didn't actually say I was with the Red Cross, but uh, I, I wanted to get down there. So this nun walks up, and it was, it was just like a gift from God. You know, like she's there, and she's got her hands up, and she's praying over the, over the wreckage. And I was just photographing it, photographing, photographing. And it, it was very powerful. It gives me chills thinking about it right now. It was an insane time you never knew what was going to happen next right like all these things had happened but we we didn't know like were, were there more coming were, were, were there bombs on the ground we, we had no idea and the city i don't know if you've been there or, or i will assume that a lot of your audience has been there but the city is always very loud it's, it's an extremely loud extremely fast place and to grow up there you just get used to it that's just life you know everything's loud everything's fast everything's just in your face it was so quiet that day after after the third tower collapsed after tower seven collapsed it was just so quiet people were in a daze you know obviously right understandably so and it, it was very interesting to to be a part of it and just sort of experience it and to photograph it and just for for the future generations so they can potentially understand it uh, it really i don't i don't really know how to say it except that I'm glad I was there. I think it was sort of our generation's Pearl Harbor. Um, I, I attempted to volunteer, but just to tell you kind of the outpouring of support from people around, I attempted to volunteer. I attempted to give blood and they weren't taking any more volunteers and they 
wouldn't take any more blood. They had so many people lined up to give blood. They just, they didn't have any more capacity. And that was, it's kind of like the, from the, the Phoenix will rise from the ashes, right? It's like, well, the, the tower has collapsed, but you saw the best side of people on that day and on those days that followed is people just did everything they could to help their neighbors and, and just whether it's giving them a bottle of water or, or just giving them a meal or, or, or helping them out, you know, giving, giving them a place to stay, just, just helping people out. You, you really did get to see the best side of people in spite of the, the nastiness that occurred. I'm wondering then in particular of your own personal experience, how do you think that that changed your worldview, that particular event, being there, experiencing it, experience, actually being there firsthand, seeing what happened and then the subsequent events that happened afterwards? How, how did that change you as a person, as an individual? Well, it, that's actually a great question, James, because as I mentioned before with the, the MTV Music Awards, I had caught my big break, so to speak, right? But then 9-11 occurred. No one cared about some some party three, four days earlier, right now, if this had happened two, three weeks earlier, I might've made a couple hundred thousand dollars, like, like no joke. Right. But it changed my particular journey, if you will, in that, as I had mentioned, I had maxed out every credit card. I had no income outside of what I was doing in photography. I was going, I had full on jumped in both fires, burned the boats, go for, you know, go for broke. Right. And I, uh, I needed a way out. I needed a. I needed something. I needed something quick. So, I had looked at some some opportunities overseas online, and uh, long story short, I had uh, had offers in China, Korea, and Japan to to go and teach. I, while I was doing my photography for for those those years back in uh, in New York and New Jersey, I was teaching. I was a high school teacher in Patterson, New Jersey, and. I, I took a job in Korea. So two weeks after 9-11, I was on a plane to South Korea and stayed there for the next two years and three months teaching English. So it changed my journey. I mean, if you, you could almost say that indirectly because it, it, it got me to have to go somewhere else. It got me to have to go make a change. But indirectly, it almost got me to playing Gaelic football, as odd as that sounds, right? Because I, I, I go to Korea I teach, uh, playing soccer again for the first time since I was 11 years old. And then I met these guys like uh, Kevin Tobin, a guy from Dublin, who, who dear friend of mine for almost 20 years now. He, he founded that club in, in Seoul uh, with several other guys. But you know, just kind of the, the, the wildness of life and the, the, the beauty of life. You, you take this terrible event and it turns into this thing that's been – one of the biggest things of my, my adulthood, right. is Gaelic football. And, and it wouldn't have happened. It may not have happened if I hadn't gone to Korea, mm. you know, you look at what Gaelic football has meant to me and, and it all kind of boils down to coming back to that, that day, that, that nine 11 and what it forced my hand to do, you know, what, what cards could I play? Well, this is a card that I could play. And I went to Korea and, and kind of never looked back. And my plan for all my life was, you know, travel, do all these things, but, I was going to raise my family in the New York City area. I haven't lived there since. There you go. I've been gone. I've been gone out of there for almost night, almost nineteen years to the day. I've been out of there, but I wouldn't trade a minute of it. You know, through through again through the GAA 
not just the GA, but through through these life experiences, like I've learned multiple languages. I've traveled to 30 countries. I've again, I started playing Gaelic and the, the journey that that I've been able that I've been on with the Gaelic. I mean, I met my wife through Gaelic. I I've traveled to countries all over the world, whether it's Thailand. I, I went back with my old club in uh, November of 18. I went uh, with my old club, the Soul Gales, and went and played in the Asian Gaelic Games again, and just had a phenomenal time. You know, traveled down there. It took 30 hours from the day I left, from the moment I left, 30 hours to get there, and. I was on the ground for three days, played a two-day football tournament on the lash every night, as you do, <laughs> and then uh, and then flew back and and got back Monday morning at 7 a.m. and went to work. You know, but it's just like these exciting experiences are like in February, I traveled with my, my club from California, my old club in California. They they had sent out a message last October, like, hey, anybody up for, for going to play in the Patio Shea in Kerry in February? I said to my wife, I was like, if I don't do this now, like I'm never going to do it, right? So went over to uh, trained like a lunatic, got myself fit as can be and went over and played in the party O'Shea in February. And we won, we won the tournament. Congratulations. Like, we won the juniors and cheers. It was, you know, so again, getting back to like how that day impacted me, it was an awful day. And, you know, about what 4,000 people in my, in my city got killed, right? Something for 3,000 in my city and like 3,500, 4,000 overall got killed. Awful, awful. But the city rebuilt. The city looks really good. Uh, the people are, you know, we're, we're resilient people. We, we, you know, we got on with it, right? We, uh, we don't forget, but we got on with it. And for me personally, it, it really, it, it accelerated my journey to, to even higher, higher levels. And the, this journey that I continue to be on today. So, yeah, again, I like to look at the positive in all sides and, and I got to look at it that way too. Absolutely. And uh, it's a, an amazing journey. Um, what is your wisdom, Johnny? And what is your advice for people out there today? I think that I, and I've just got back, gotten back to following my own advice, but, you know, I knew at a very young age, sort of the, the, the fragility and the, the, the shorter, the sort of shortness of life, right. And the, to me, it meant like I need to do as much as I can and see as much as I can because life is so short, man. It is just so short. And there's, there's so much you can do. But if you're just going to sit at your at your house and you know, complain about what's going on and not do anything about it, you're not going to get anywhere in this world. And for me, I think that the journey and what we've been able to do, what I've been able to do is just fascinating. And, and life just continues to fascinate me. For me, it's never been about the money. And I think this is the most important bit of wisdom that I'd like to pass on. Look, I'm not a millionaire. I'm not a millionaire by any stretch, but I've had a, a million experiences. And that to me is a hell of a lot more important than what my bank account looks like. So, you know, there's not too many people that I know who are living here in the States who, who can say that they've been able to travel and they've been able to experience all these great things. So I'm very fortunate in that way. Again, I, I don't come from some huge financial background, but I've been able to have life experiences that people would die for. Uh, you know, not just the things I've talked about, but even just adding more, like, you know, running with the bulls in Pamplona or or just traveling to these crazy jungles in the middle of South America and, and talking with shaman and just like wild experiences that you just don't get on a daily basis. You know, you don't really hear about the school. 
I think people should really set their minds on, on the idea that it, it's, it's a bit unnerving to be able to travel, but to do it will just enlighten you and expand your mind to, to places you, you never even knew existed. And, and what you learn from there, from those experiences, is a hell of a lot more than you could ever learn in some university class or a book. The, those life experiences, those travels, and if people put more of a focus on their experiences rather than the almighty chase for the dollar or the pound or whatever currency you happen to be under, I think their life would be that much richer. And there's a, there's a great quote from uh, an American musician named Jerry Garcia. who was with the band The Grateful Dead. He passed away 25 years ago, but uh, there's a great quote. You do not merely want to be considered the best of the best. You want to be considered the only one who does what you do. And I don't know if I'm the only one who does this. I know plenty of people who travel, but I live my life like it's it's my only life to live. And because I truly believe it is. And I hope people would, would if they can learn one thing from this, it's, man, live your life. We won't be here forever. Get the most out of it. Squeeze as much juice out of that as you can. And, uh, and enjoy it while you go. Johnny, thank you so much for coming on the hut near the bog. James, I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much, and uh, God bless. Look forward to meeting you here when, uh, when all this nonsense ends. And this then so much appreciate it from Getting it to John. Mike Sheehan must be a goal. Folks, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please don't forget to follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please do give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the hut near the bog. See you soon. Bye.